0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?
1: Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw.
0: The conman, the faith healer, the antichrist, Russia's protector, Russia's destroyer. Rasputin was a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Did this late 19th and early 20th century Siberian peasant really have supernatural healing powers? Did he really hold strange spiritual orgies in both his Siberian basement and in St. Petersburg with the imperialist elites? How much did he really have to do with the end of imperialist Russia and its transition to communism? And how did this legendarily hard-to-kill dude really die? There are a lot of different legends out there about Rasputin, but this we know for sure. This dude's getting sucked right now on Time Suck. You're
1: listening to Time Suck.
0: Happy Monday, everybody. I'm Dan Cummins. Thanks for listening to another edition of The Suck. Thanks for choosing to put more strange shit into your mind. Will you be able to use any of it to advance your career? Highly doubt it. Will it make you a more interesting person to talk to? Uh, for fucking sure it will. Today's Mad Russian Time Suckery is brought to you by the Fantasy Footballers Podcast. Hosts, gentlemen, football scholars Andy Holloway, Jason Moore, and Mike Wright have a really special thing going on. I don't know if you're an ESPN Sports Center fan, but I'll watch that even when I don't care about what happened in sports that day sometimes just because I like the vibe of the show, I like the humor, I like the chemistry of the hosts. Fantasy Footballers is that type of program. And it's the best fantasy football podcast out there, hands down. They're number one on iTunes in the fantasy football category, day in, day out. They won the 2016 People's Choice Award for Best Podcast from the Academy of Podcasters Podcast Awards. And they love Time Suck. They're Time Suckers. So you know they're wonderful people. This week and next week, Time Suck is sponsoring fantasy footballers. And they're sponsoring us because we all felt like our listeners would enjoy each other's shows. And you'll especially love fantasy footballers if you play fantasy football. It's a year-round fantasy cast that kicks it up uh, from two shows a week to five shows a week, Monday through Friday, August through December, so you get full coverage all season long. Uh, I'm listening this year for sure because I want to dominate my family league because my sister won last year even though she just auto-drafted and even though she didn't watch uh, a single game, and that's bullshit, and that can't happen again. And my son Kyler, uh, if if I can't win, I want him to win. Right, he really, really is into fantasy football, and he's going to get some fantasy footballers knowledge this season. Little dude uh, loves fantasy. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know that he listens enough where he realizes he he shouldn't you know draft AJ Green uh, in the first round. He's a wide receiver. Let's not do that. So listen, download, and subscribe via iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Link to the Fantasy Footballers podcast will be in today's episode description. Check that out and give him a shot. Okay, now let's get to some polling. The results of the Time Suck Instagram bonus episode poll are in. The poll to determine whether the next bonus episode is going to be Project MK Ultra, secret CIA experiments involving shit like mind control, the Heaven's Gate cult, or the Iceman. Richard Kuklinski, a uh, former mafia hitman. And the winner is MK Ultra by Landslide. Over double the request for MK Ultra than there were for either the Iceman or Heaven's Gate. Iceman and Heaven's Gate both did get enough love uh, to move up the list, though. So those two topics are now going to come up sooner than they than they would have been otherwise. And MK Ultra will be here very, very soon. It's going to be the next uh, the next bonus, the uh, the 800 review edition, and uh, I believe we got about seven seventy five or so reviews right now. So that's coming up uh, pretty soon, pretty soon on a on a Friday uh, near now. So thanks, uh, Time Suckers, for all the uh, recent iTunes reviews, subscriptions, recommendations for others to listen. Spreading the suck week in, week out. I think the suck is best when it's, when it's shared. Get some good old group sucking going on. Circle suck. An information orgy. A, a curiosity cuddle. That last one was really a stretch. Uh, appreciate the, the uh, t-shirt, book, and album purchases. Other fun stuff uh, coming down the pipe in the in the Time Suck store soon. You can just click shop at timesuckpodcast.com to, to check out what we have right now. And I like it, like those uh, Lady Bojangles tees been selling lately. Um, seen some at shows, and they look good. I know turquoise is a risk, but I'm telling you, it's a solid shirt. And, uh, and of course, soft. Of course, pure koala anus on that one as well. Uh, thanks to old friend and time sucker Gail Thurston, time sucker's Tim Rappold, Eric Brooks, time suck app designer, that's right, the app is uh, just starting uh, getting built, and, uh, and time sucker Chris Pakel. Uh, He's a busy dude, and uh, he requested this. Cree Lucas, Brent Savard, Joseph Drago, Adam Kaufman, Les McNair, Nick Perry, Matt Appitts, Jason Coburn, and a bunch of others. So much desire to suck Rasputin, which is fitting because this dude uh, got sucked a lot in his own lifetime. More on that later. Big thanks also to my sister Donna Hale for kicking off the Rasputin research, another member of the Bojangles research team. And uh, she gave me a great narrative to balance the rest of my research uh, against and compare against. A very helpful. Uh, she knows a lot about Russian history, and it was awesome having her on board and getting to do an episode with her. I uh, hope to do another uh, Russian one down the road with my sister. Now, uh, time to catch up on some past shows with some Time Sucker updates.
1: Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates.
0: All right, kicking, kicking this one off with an extremely interesting update uh, from Time Sucker Kathleen Phil. Regarding the third bonus episode, Rise of the Third Reich, which I talked, uh, I talked about what conditions led to the rise of Hitler and the near destruction of the Jewish people in that one. So easy to demonize one group of people and give sainthood to others in atrocious situations like that, right? It's easy to say that the Germans did what they did because they were soulless, horrific, racist, inherently bad people, and the Jewish Germans were the best people who ever lived, uh, noble through and through in every respect. Never bother anyone. Never did anything wrong. But you know, black and white thinking like that is always just incorrect. It's childish. Like somebody's gotta, you sometimes gotta man up and really look at it. Uh, people in situations are nuanced, you know? And Kat brings up an angle to the situation. You almost never hear discussed. Uh, very bold and I appreciate it. She writes, Oh, hallowed suckmaster. I recently found this podcast, so I'm binge listening to past episodes. I realize this might be late for an update. Oh, it's not. You're, you're gonna know that now. But there's something you need to know. I'm not defending what I'm about to explain. Uh, but people don't have a first-hand understanding of the German daily life of Germans between World War I and World War II. My grandmother was a girl between one and two living there and has told me many stories. Uh, she explained to me why it was so easy for people to get behind the government in accusing the Jewish people for all their problems initially. She explained to me that after World War I, wealthy Jewish people had moved into German communities to set up businesses. If you were Jewish, there was one price. Uh, for Aryan Germans, it was a higher price. And because they came to Germany in between the wars, they had ridiculous wealth compared to the German people. Because uh, if you don't uh, know, uh, World War One basically like was all pinned on Germany, and they <laughs> they just were fucking destroyed by kind of economically by the rest of Europe. So it was very very rough in post World War One uh, Germany for the German people. Very bad economy um, so back then. She gives an example: a dollar, uh, one dollar American was like one trillion Deutsch Marks. Basically, uh, the German people were either eating shoe leather and wallpaper, you know, or or starving. Uh, and then the Jewish people, a lot of them were ha- who just moved, so you know their uh, finances aren't destroyed. They're having like tea and cakes. And here's a firsthand example. She says, "My great grandmother was acquainted with a Jewish lady in her neighborhood. One day, she and my grandmother went to visit another lady at her home. Not long after they arrived, some friends of the Jewish lady dropped by. The woman asked uh, my great grandmother to wait uh, in the kitchen, thinking nothing of it. Uh, they did. In the meantime, the woman's maid prepared tea for her and her friends and my great grandmother." Uh, were offered nothing. They were treated like low-class citizens. Not only did this lady have a maid, but they had enough food to have treats and feed their friends and family. Uh, They had enough for everybody. Uh, These weren't isolated incidents. When the new radical government started to blame the Jewish people for all their problems, many Germans had been treated like this by Jewish people for many years. When you flaunt wealth or depressed, uh, when you flaunt wealth, Um, To people who are already suffering, it's easier to convince them that one group of people is to blame. The common people didn't have the same overall hatred the way that the elite slash governmental Germans did. But before things went sideways and everything got nuts with the Nazis, it was easy to hate people who could afford a loaf of bread when you couldn't. Right, just basic jealousy. Uh, there's a lot more to it if you want a boots-on-the-ground idea of what life was like day-to-day in Germany in this period. If you want to hear more, let me know. It's hard to understand history when you don't know all the sides. My family never became anti-Semitic, even after being treated this way. In fact, my great-grandfather died in a concentration camp specifically for helping Jewish people escape from Germany. As I said, Uh, I don't agree with what happened during the war. Unfortunately, I can see where radical German officials took a frustrated, poor, and hungry group of people and turned them against another group of people who were discriminating against them. By the time the common person understood the depth of the retaliation against the Jewish people, it was way too late. At that point, your personal opinions would, not could, get you killed. Hope you learned something new. Always your humble sucker, Kat. Thank you, Kat. I I did learn something new. That was great. You know, let me first uh, reiterate that Kat is not saying in any way, just to be very clear, that the Jewish people deserved any of what happened to them during the Holocaust. Uh, I'm not saying that in any shape or form either. They didn't. They did not uh, objectively. But this story gives some interesting, rarely spoke about uh, kind of context to the tragedy and I think a good lesson to learn from. And basically to me it is you never know when the haves can become the have-nots. So I think it's just best to play nice as often as you can with everybody. right? I think about that with the anti-immigration diehards in our country right now. Uh, you know, taking it a step further, you know, I think about the people who are just flat-out racist, just just based, just totally racist against Mexican people specifically, Mexican-Americans. Uh, and eventually, you know, if current trends continue, the majority ethnic group in a lot of states and perhaps the nation as a whole is going to be Mexican. That's just – that's just we can't stop it. It's going to happen. So it's, uh, it's in the best interest of every other group uh, to be fucking nice to Mexicans. I mean you shouldn't, you know, be racist on ethical grounds just because it's inherently wrong. But there's also a practical self-serving reason or a variety of reasons to not discriminate. You know, because your group might be living high in the hog now, but that should never last forever. And again, none of this is even slightly condoning any amount of anti-Semitism anywhere. But it's just interesting to think about how many Jewish people could have been just as racist as many Aryan Germans were. You know, uh, I think about that a lot. It's like no group is immune from racism. No ethnic group is incapable of being racist. I feel like sometimes media kind of slants things that way. Like uh, Like it's almost like an Aryan disease to be racist. That's just not true. Every human can be racist, and we all need to kind of check ourselves from time to time. And I just thought, uh, uh, when I said check, uh, I just also thought uh, you need to check yourself before you, before you wreck yourself, uh, which I believe is from a group called DosFX, and uh, They were around and popular a very long time ago, and I just thought of that because uh, I'm old. Anyway, uh, the second update is JFK, another bonus episode, the sixth bonus episode. Uh, it's about the assassination. It came in uh, from Jonathan Mueller, and he writes, Hello, King Cummins, Magnificent. I started listening to your podcast about a month ago after my carpool buddy would instantly veto any song that played out of my phone. Since then, your podcast has played every other day. Goddamn right. I like it, Jonathan. Way to sneak that in there. Uh, One of the first episodes we listened to was about the uh, JFK assassination. Holy shit. Great research research presentation, and the overall vibe of it was spectacular. Thank you. That was one of my favorites. I wasn't sure if you'd heard about uh, new developments. I have not. But we may get some new info about JFK. I can't remember if I knew that or not. Basically, thousands of documents are going to be declassified in October. But the 1992 Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act gives one person the ability to keep the documents sealed slash classified. That person is old Donnie Trump. <laughs> Donald Donald Trump has the opportunity to reveal to the world if C, if the CIA, Lee Harvey Oswald, or some other dude was responsible for killing a charismatic, effective, and ambitious president. If that happens, a part three on the JFK assassination would be fantastic. Keep on sucking. Jonathan Mueller. God, that's a great update. That would be cool doing a, a part three. How, how awesome would that be to get some new info on JFK? I hope it's something. I hope it's something mind blowing. I really, I really do. Just it'd be exciting. How great would it be if it was like ridiculous? Like I know this won't happen, but what if we found out in October that it was like John Wayne for sure? The Duke shot JFK, case closed. Or Joe DiMaggio, Joe, Joe DiMaggio in between some homestand, got got down to Dallas, put a bullet in JFK. Be fucking mind. Seriously though, I I hope they leak something interesting. I hope I hope they just. I, hope they, I mean, best case, they flat out just say the CIA did it, just unequivocally. Yep, CIA did it. Total conspiracy. That would be the best because then conspiracy theorists that have been denied, like made fun of for believing that for decades would lose their goddamn mind. People, They'd be literally just weeping with joy, running through the streets. I told you. I told you I wasn't crazy. I told you motherfuckers. I'm not crazy. Oh. And then some other guy, like, hey, Tom, uh, Tom, I know you're excited right now, buddy, and congrats. But uh, I think people would believe you uh, a little more uh, if you took off your aluminum foil hat. <laughs> no, and, and let the aliens ruin the greatest day of my life. No, no, man, the space lizards are not gonna be shitting on my parade. They're not gonna be controlling my thoughts from the goddamn moon base. I knew it. I knew this. Yeah, I did it. I don't know. It'd be awesome. Third and final update today coming in from time sucker Alec, Alex Muri about a another old episode, episode thirty three, the designer babies episode, my worst titled episode. A lot of people skip that one. I feel like because designer babies. Uh, doesn't necessarily sound like something exciting. It's not like babies wearing, like, fucking expensive clothes or something. It's not about that. Uh, I talked a lot about genetically modified organisms in that episode. Definitely took a uh, pro-GMO stance, partially based on research I came across that said we eventually won't be able to grow enough crops to sustain an exponentially growing world population with non-GMO crops. Uh, Alex believes uh, differently, wrote in saying, Hi, Dan. Love the podcast. Uh, disappointed listening to the episode on GMOs where you advise we shouldn't be concerned about GMOs. The problem is that they are being modified. Uh, to withstand uh, glyphosate, meaning that they can use more of it. It has become an ingredient that is in most of our food supply. Not only are crops doused with it, but the plants take it in from the contaminated soil. It is believed by some highbrow researchers to be a trigger for celiac disease, other digestive disorders. It is also believed to be a blocker to neurotransmitters and a cause of autism and other brain fog disorders. I was diagnosed with celiac two years ago, so I spent many hours researching the topic. Google Stephanie Seneff, a top MIT researcher, and you'll find quite a bit uh, on glysof- glysof- glyphosate on the debate. How are we going to feed the world? A better question is how are we going to keep the world population from spiraling out of control? That should be a time suck episode. The more population increases exponentially, the sooner the Earth's expiration date will come as we work closer to destroy our planet's beauty. Mo' people, more problems. Uh, everyone is so worried about saving every life and fetus with no population control, and I think you are of the same mindset I am, and that many more of us in uh, that that the more of us there are, the less people give a shit about each other. Yeah. Anyways, to sum up, GMOs bad. Monsanto uh, to big, too big and bad. Uh, glyphosate very very bad. And do an episode about the tragedy of human overpopulation of the Earth. How many of us is too many? Thanks and keep on sucking, Alex. Well, th- thanks, Alex. First off, uh, I do I, I, w- I do want to do a uh, episode about world overpopulation. Uh, yeah, that would be a good one. I don't know how many of us is too many when it comes to that, uh, but I do know there is an exact number. I'm sure there is. The Earth, the Earth has a finite amount of resources. You know, Eventually, we're just going to need to do something uh, if war, famine, and disease don't do the work for us. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I don't have time, unfortunately, to do a second full time suck this week to figure out exactly why Monsanto is what they're doing, uh, how bad it is, uh, how maybe not bad it is, what, you know, has been done. Um, but I will do a time suck on that enormous company someday. All I can say after digging into glyphosate and its relation to autism and other health concerns, and I just kind of dug in for a little bit, is that the research results seem to be pretty mixed. For every article praising the research of, like, you know, Stephanie Seneff, there's another, uh, you know, researcher deeply criticizing her her findings, now, the, uh, the scientific community definitely not in agreement concerning GMOs or glyphosate. Uh, could science, some scientists be in the pockets of big companies like Monsanto? Sure, absolutely. I'm sure there are some, but I highly doubt all scientists who are okay with GMOs are being bribed. The big debate is do ingredients like glyphosate actually have the ability to alter our DNA? You know, I talked about that in the uh, Designer Baby episode, and every time sucker who wrote in at the time, you know, claimed to have, who, who were, you know, claiming to have a scientific slash academic background in the area of agriculture or genetic modification, they said it's safe. You know, experimental evidence has shown that glyphosate does not bioaccumulate in any animal tissue, no uh, significant toxicity has occurred in acute subchronic and chronic uh, studies. That all being said, you might be right, though, Alex. That'll be, you know, uh, there's still a lot of research being done, and uh, they may be very, very bad indeed. But until studies begin to consistently show they're obviously bad, I'm, I'm just not going to be convinced. Correlation doesn't prove causation. A lot of crops have been treated with uh, herbicides, with glyphosate, and people who eat them do have a variety of health problems, like you stated. But uh, a lot more people are, are born with no health problems who have eaten the same crops. And there are just so many environmental factors out there. It's just hard to say that GMOs or, or chemicals and fertilizer are, are, the, are the causes the causes. Uh, definitively of like autism, gluten sensitivity, celiac, anything else. I don't know. Maybe I'm rationalized at all because I don't want to overpay for shit in the organic section of the store. But I will look into it later. I like it. I like where your head's at. Uh, you know, and I don't want to buy any shit from, from Whole Foods because it's, it's too expensive. So that's where I'm at with that one. Uh, but I am still willing to change my mind. I will do an episode on, Mo- on Monsanto Monsanto specifically someday. So thanks for reminding me of how it's an interesting topic there, Alex. Uh, and if, if you don't mind, maybe send me some uh, uh, specific studies if you get a chance. Either way. Whether you send me the studies or not, you, you keep on sucking, goddammit. And now, let's all suck on today's episode.
1: Next time, suckers.
0: I needed that. We all did. Okay, so before we get into Rasputin, uh, we need to understand a bit about the world he lived in. His story is so fucking crazy. Uh, it's going to seem crazy, even in its context. But without context, it just seems unbelievable. Like, there's no way this happened kind of a story. And, uh, and speaking of, there's no way this happened before we set the context for his life. I, wanna, I want you to hear a song written about him that I didn't know about. My sister pointed this out to me. She, uh, she turned me on to this. It's titled simply, it's like Ra Ra Rasputin. Or I think it's just actually called Rasputin. Uh, it's a little bit of ear magic. It is uh, ridiculous that this thing just even exists. And it is uh, written and performed by Boney M, a 70s disco group formed in West Germany by German record producer Frank Farian composed of members from Jamaica and Aruba and this song released in 1978 hit number one on the German, Austrian and Australian charts and it hit number two in the UK and Switzerland and it's since been covered by Finnish metal band uh, Tursas and a Minnesota folk rock band Boiled and Lead that's a good band name Boiled and Lead and I know it feels like I'm making all this up but (laughs) here is Rasputin and I feel like this track uh, sets the, the perfect tone for today's show uh huh
1: here we go. There lived a certain man in Russia long ago. He was big and strong in his eyes of flaming glow. Most people look at him with the
0: I gotta pause it real quick. I wish you could just see the presentation. It's so theatrical. They're wearing these like all white over the tops. The women have these like sequined headdress things. Uh, the dude has like a big white cape and this giant afro and this crazy like just big beard. And and they're just like you know intentionally being like wild eyed in their pres- It's it's insane. Wow! Wow! That is the '70s, man. Fucking wild times. So over the top, I guess, especially in Germany. Uh, I guess these guys were like wildly popular too. They had like all these kind of number one hits out there, and they're, man, they're present. You got to check out the video if you. I'll put a uh, a link. I got to put a link in the uh, episode description. It's just it's incredible. Truly, truly something else. So you're welcome. You're welcome for that. Um, <laughs> okay. So the end of the 19th century, a period of, of great change. In Russia, for the people of Russia, not for the better. Things were getting uh, grim for most of the people of Russia. Uh, that, that's not fair. Uh, since most of the people of Russia were, were peasants, and peasants notoriously get fucked over, especially in feudal societies like Russia had, uh, things were getting uh, grim-er. Uh, the Romanovs, uh, Russia's second royal dynasty had ruled since 1613 uh, CE. The Rurik dynasty had ruled uh, Russia before that in various forms prior to the Romanovs uh, since 862CE. So by the late 1800s Russia had been part of an imperialistic monarchy, you know uh, for uh, a thousand years, over a thousand years, which means you know life was great for the most part, uh, for the nobility of Russia for over a millennia and shit for everyone else for the most part. Uh, but not really shittier than it was for any of the other world's poor people. You know, just kind of how it was. Uh, the nation had grown steadily over the centuries, become enormous, now stretching from Europe and the west and, uh, and to the Pacific and the very northwestern edge of Asia and the east. Siberia alone makes up roughly 10% of the Earth's land surface with 51 million square miles of soil and tundra and Cossacks. Uh, Cossacks were a race of uh, Russian lizard people that now live underground, locked in perpetual battle with battle with the space lizards uh, of Illuminati fame. So much lizard fighting underground. I don't know if you realize that. That's why I never dig that's why I uh, don't plant a garden. I don't want to risk slipping into a goddamn lizard fight trying to grow some corn. You know what I mean? We all think that, right, guys? Right? I'm going to take off my aluminum foil hat. Uh, that's ridiculous. The, uh, the Cossacks were a group of people who inhabited southern Russia and Ukraine, noted for their horsemanship, military skill, uh, who Russian royalty basically converted into like a, a knight class to help defend Russia's western and southern borders. Other, th- other than in the northern Urals and Siberia, which had only been um, kind of more recently populated by Russians, largely by citizens exiled from eastern Russia— uh, beginning in the mid-17th century, most of the peasantry of Russia had been largely converted into serfdom in the 17th century, which was unusual as far as timelines go because serfdom had already been abolished by that time in, what, in the rest of Europe. Like England had formally abolished uh, serfdom in 1574. France had gotten rid of it by the uh, 15th century. The rest of Western Europe had abolished it by the 16th century. And then Russia was like, you know what? Uh, we were thinking instead of getting uh, like rid of serfs, how about we get started with it? basically Russia to the rest of Europe was like my hometown compared to the rest of America. My little Idaho hometown. When like, when America was like, you know what? We're done with hammer pants and acid wash jeans. Uh, my town was like, you know what? We're, we're getting started with hammer pants and acid wash jeans. We're, we're getting into them. Well, by the late 19th century, serfs were getting uh, tired of being serfs in Russia. They were like, why the fuck are we the only people in Europe still working for the Lord of the land? Like some medieval dipshits. That's a loose translation. Of what they were thinking. Uh, In order to quell a bunch of serf uprisings, according to uh, official records kept by the Ministry of the Interior, there had been some 712 peasant uprisings in Russia between 1826 and 1854 alone. Serfdom was finally abolished in 1861 in Russia by Tsar Alexander II, kind of. Really, the serfs had been tricked by the Tsar, and virtual slavery of the rural peasant class continued. Fucking Tsars, man. Always tricky. Always tricky. That's where that old saying comes from. uh, Never trust a Tsar farther than you can throw a used car. Uh, so that, that's where that one comes from in my head. Unlike prior to 1861, uh, serfs were now allowed to own property, marry according to their own choice, trade freely, sue in court, vote in local elections, but now freedom, kind of. While the peasants were now able to buy land from the land-owning boyar nobility, they could only buy the land the nobles were cool with selling, which of course was the shittiest land. They're still being just, just you know, dicked over on the wreck. Just you know, hey, uh, uh, how much would you sell that green pasture with the babbling brook flowing serenely through the middle of it, the one with all the well-fed cattle grazing around it the, and the nice soil? How much would you sell that for? Oh no, you don't, you don't want that piece of land there, little surf. No, no, you you want the area behind the pasture, that that hilly, uh, rocky, craggy, unfarmable, sandy area with the with the dry creek bed and the old manger goat uh, licking some dirt for moisture. That's that's what you'd like,
1: ha. Huh. I guess
0: it's better than nothing, sir. How, how much do you want for it? Oh, I'll just just—I'll uh, sell it to you for whatever... Well, whatever would be triple you were hoping to pay for the nice pasture with the with the brook. Uh, yep. The nobles picked the land, and they set the price, which was far above value. Moreover, since the uh, newly freed peasants had no money, they often had to borrow 100% of the new mortgages, and since their shitty land didn't yield very many crops, they weren't making money, so they couldn't really pay the loan back. And, and a loan that in many instances the boyars themselves had given them. So, you know, so they basically just we now paying the boyars to farm the same land that they, that they just had to farm for them previously. Like it was actually a worse deal for many of them where, you know, previously they got to keep some of their crops. Now they have to like sell all their crops to cover their mortgage, which is never going to be paid off. It's fucking terrible. Um, so basically, Tsar Alexander II, you know, he raised the expectations of the Russian peasants, only to dash them, only to make them realize they've been tricked, and this didn't make Alexander uh, terribly popular with the Russian peasantry. Uh, socialist movements began to pop up during his rule, the early seeds of communism in Russia, a movement grown in response to the oppression of the poor by imperialistic monarchy and nobility. You know, Tsar Alexander II would be assassinated in 1881 uh, by a revolutionary socialist group known as the People's Will. A bomb. killed Alexander uh, after several previous unsuccessful assassination attempts uh, attempts like stuff to like derail his train, shoot him, blow up his home he was not well liked uh, ironically, on the day he was killed, he had just signed a proclamation, the so-called Loris uh, Melikov Constitution, that would have created two legislative commissions made up of uh, indirectly of elected representatives, a concession to the peasants and working class that would have limited the power of the monarchy and given more power to the people of Russia. So, like, literally on the day, he's like, "Okay, all right, all right, I'll cut you a deal." The people he's trying to cut the deal with are like, "Fucking kill him!" They don't even know about the deal. And then his son, Alexander the Third. Uh, takes the throne, and squashes that deal immediately. Uh, like, the, uh, the the day he takes the throne, that policy, that's gone, and he makes it clear that the crown is still the fucking crown, and the Russian people are going to bow before it. Uh, the new uh, emperor believed that the, he believed in remaining true to the Russian orthodoxy, autocracy, autocracy, uh, autocracy. god dang it, Russian orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality, which was an ideally, uh, ideology, Jesus Christ, can we fit more giant words? Can we fit more fucking level 10 Scrabble words into one motherfucking sentence. Uh, This new emperor believed that remaining true to Russian orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality and idea... No wonder fucking announcers talk so goddamn slow. Right? When they try and get excited, like I do, and fucking bury through this stuff, you know? Keep up a a hot pace. It's like a constant tongue twister. Anyway, Anyway, this ideology was introduced by his grandfather, Emperor Nicholas I, uh, he thought it would save Russia from revolutionary agitation, and in this ideology, orthodoxy is defined as devotion to, belief in, and protection of the Russian Orthodox Church, a Christian church that had morphed out of the Eastern Orthodox Church in the 17th century. The Eastern Orthodox Church, having then, uh, having had split from the Catholics uh, in Rome in 1054, you know BCE, uh, autocracy in this ideology is defined as unconditional loyalty to the House of Romanov. That's nice uh, in return for a paternalistic protection of the Russian Empire. And uh, nationality uh, was defined as recognition of the state founding role of Russian nationality and equal citizen rights for all other peoples inhabiting Russia, and I'm not making this part up, with with exclusion of Jews because of their, quote, imminent hate towards Russian people and anti-human nature. Motherfucker. Seriously, that's what it said. That's a direct quote. Man, the Jewish people, just perpetually unliked in Europe, just getting fucked over century after century. My God. Oy vey. So basically Alexander III uh, is promoting an ideology of belief in God, the Christian God, and that God alone, country and crown. And Alexander III would reign for 13 years surviving assassination attempts from the same crew that killed his dad. In 1887, various assassination conspirators uh, were arrested and hanged, including the older brother of Vladimir Lenin. uh, You know, who's one of the Bolsheviks uh, who would help overthrow the monarchy and, and lead Russia into decades of communism roughly 30 years later. Alexander would die in 1894 at the age of 49 of a terminal kidney disease. The throne passing to his 25-year-old dipshit son, Nicholas II, the last czar of Russia. And Nicholas was not ready to take power of a giant, unstable empire. Uh, he was kind of like a trust fund kid. He was a kid who just wanted to eat fucking traveled. He hung out. You know, he ate some nice pastries. He lived a life of leisure. And he had no training of any kind. He didn't think he'd have to, like, take charge for a long, long time. And he just – he wasn't ready, and uh, he got thrown into it. Uh, Russia had kicked ass militarily for a few centuries before the mid and latter 19th century, defeating the Ottoman Turks in the Russo-Turkish War of 1806 to 1812, acquiring the eastern half of Moldavia, uh, Moldavia, uh, defeating the Turks again in 1828, taking over the rest of Moldavia and Wallachia, defeating Persia and acquiring parts of Armenia in the Russo-Persian War in 1826, 1828, crushing Poland in 1831, uh, with the, When they had a rebellion there, taking away what little autonomy it had, placing it fully under Russian control. And then starting with the Crimean War of 1853-1856, Russia's era of military dominance begins to wane. They're defeated by an alliance of Ottoman, French, British, and Sardinian forces. Then in 1905, a decade after young Nicholas takes over, uh, Japan kicks Russia's ass, annihilating the bulk of the Russian navy in the Battle of Tsushima. Now it's gotten its ass kicked in back-to-back wars. Which is very demoralizing to the proud Russian people who had for centuries taken comfort in the strength of their military even when times are tough. You know? Uh, not only falling behind regarding this military, Russia is also falling behind industrially with the rest of Europe other, other countries had gone through the agricultural revolution by the late 1800s increasing yields you know and then got rid of like the serfdom thing uh, freeing up people and money to fuel a now well-developed industrial revolution. Russia is well behind that. it's still largely undeveloped. Uh, basically most of its substance or uh, based mostly on s- substance agriculture uh, making it difficult to produce grain for export to finance large-scale industrial development. Russia is still primarily an uh, agrarian society as of 1881. Wheat is the largest export. Uh, There were only small pockets of industrial development in parts of Ukraine and around Moscow and St. Petersburg. The industrial working class made up only 4% of the working population in the 1897 census after five years of rapid industrialization. Over 80% of the population is peasants, and half of these are serfs tied to the land in that substance, agriculture. So the world is changing, and Russia, Russia is not keeping up. Uh, that would be a difficult situation for, for any leader to manage, you know, in a difficult country to manage, you know, it's, it's over 6,000 miles wide. The only way to travel from St. Petersburg to Siberia is by railroad. You got one track, a journey that would take a, over a week each way. It's got no wifi, no movies, lots of dirty peasants who smelled bad. Made the Greyhound bus look like a fucking luxury charter. And, uh, and Nicholas is not a great leader. Uh, he's not even an average leader. Nicholas is viewed as weak, even as a child. His father referred to him as a mama's boy. And despite the fact that he was heir to the throne, Yeah, like I said, he just never received any coaching on how to be a leader, and that suited him just fine. He had no desire to to be the you know the czar. But Alexander's death left him no other option, and it was just thought at the time that czars were chosen by God, and to abdicate the throne was to forsake one's holy duty. And it was like you know the quickest way to earn a seat in hell to do that. So he's like, all right, all right, I'll do it. And uh, Nicholas marries Alexandra. Uh, German national, which was not popular. Uh, the country wasn't hot on Germany at the time. Uh, shortly after his father's funeral in 1894, they were about to get less hot on Germany in World War One. Uh, choosing love over national interest in their in their choice to marry. So, you know, so she's not a popular choice. Or she's uh, she's also like shy, and her shy nervousness comes off as cold. Uh, she doesn't care for Russian culture, whether it was the food or the manner of dancing. Her mother-in-law loved Russian culture, was very popular and vivacious. You know, and now by contrast, she's just seen as like, damn. I got stuck with her now. She's not charismatic. Well, Nicholas is crowned May 18th, 1896. Uh, There are celebratory events, Coronation Day. Uh, Marco will be a common theme of their rule. Tragedy. This sucks. 1,300 people die in this uh, coronation ceremony waiting for mugs and sweet meats. Coronation gifts. Due to poor planning and stampeding attendees. 1,300 people. Like at essentially a fucking wedding reception get trampled waiting for sweets. Yeah. and You thought the wedding you went to sucked. And because uh, government authorities failed to relay this uh, to the news, are what had happened until the next day, uh, he doesn't immediately address the incident. So, you know, pisses off the Russian people anymore. It's like he doesn't even fucking care. It's like, yeah, whatever. 1,300 people got trampled. You know, that's, that's, you could look at that as a bad thing. But on the bright side, uh, they're peasants. And we got millions of them, so fucking who cares? Right, guys? Oh, oh, shit, you guys are peasants. Hey, I'm terribly sad about this. Uh, This event would be indicative of the rule of Nicholas II. Yeah, he was just a spoiled member of the nobility, wildly in love with his wife and their growing family, and blind to poverty and distracted from the reality of his crumbling country. He had no military experience, no leadership practice, no exposure to basic reality before before being handed the reins to the Russian Empire. Uh, St. Petersburg, the capital of imperialistic Russia, until its later fall to the communists and all of Russia, is at a tipping point. Right. The proletariat had had enough. They're tired. They're hungry. Communist rumblings are beginning to grow uh, real strength. You know, violence is erupting. And now every turn, the country's concerned about the competence of its new leader and adding to the czar's problems and opening the door for Rasputin into the royal court is the birth of Nicholas and Alexander's only son, Alexei, born in 1904. Previous to the birth of Alexei, uh, the couple had four girls in a row. Further hurting their popularity with the common people of Russia, to continue the Romanov dynasty, a male heir had to be born. And Alexandra seemed incapable of giving birth to one. And then, when he finally was born, he was born with hemophilia, a mostly inherited genetic disorder that impairs the body's ability to make blood clots, a process needed to stop bleeding. The results in people bleeding, or uh, the results are people bleeding longer uh, than normal after an injury, easier bruising, and increased risk, uh, increased risk of bleeding inside joints, of the brain. Alexandra herself had a minor form of it. And it could be traced back in her family to at least uh, her maternal grandmother. The, uh, the already disliked royal couple didn't want to increase their unpopularity by giving the Russian people more reason to worry about their future. You know, like what would happen to the government if Nicholas should die, and then there's this heir made out of fucking broken glass taking the throne. Uh, Alexei's condition was so severe uh, that they just kept it a state secret, and, and it was a severe form of hemophilia, like a bruise, nosebleed, or cut. Or, you know, were potentially life-threatening for this kid. And so Nicholas and uh, Alexander, they're also desperate to cure him, and medical doctors aren't you know, having any answers. So they start to turn to the occult, which is something else about this era. If you listen to that episode on Houdini, you'll recall that spiritualism was in vogue during the late 19th and early 20th centuries in America and Britain, and Russia was no different mediums were sought out by royals for advice seances are being held Ouija boards are used, all that kind of stuff things are getting, you know, rougher by the decade the military hasn't been dominating, the national morale is low Uh, faith in the Russian Orthodox Church is waning, and now mystical religious sects are sprouting up all around the land and Alexandra is a very superstitious woman and she has been meeting with various supposed mystics for years. The meeting's intensified after the birth of her sixth son. She wants a cure. She and Nicholas, you know, have been holding regular court seances with these two Montenegrin princesses uh, before they ever met Rasputin, known as the Crows. That's when you know you're desperate. When you start taking guidance meetings with a pair of twins who refer to themselves as the Crows. I feel like, I feel like one, if not both of them, had to have, like, a wide eye. Right? Like in those, all those horror movies. Don't creepy mystics who call themselves shit like the Crows Usually have at least one wide eye that you don't see until they lift their veil. Like, you think they have a normal face, and then they lift that veil. And it's like, oh, shit! Uh, before meeting uh, the mystic Rasputin, a French mystic, Dr. Felipe, uh, had told Alexander that after he died, a new spiritual guide would take his place. And then he dies on August 2nd, 1905. And then Rasputin meets the Tsar czar in Tsarina on November 1st, 1905. Oh, right time, right place. And then shit started to get real weird in St. Petersburg. And things would end terribly for everyone involved. So now, now you know what's led up to Rasputin's introduction to the royal family. Russia is a large, proud nation on the decline. Slow to adjust to the Industrial Revolution. Military might has been waning for a long time. Uh, The peasants have been revolting. The Bolshevik communists are waiting in the wings. Right? The lizards fighting in pits underground, maybe. Uh, Spiritualism is rising in popularity, especially among the nobles who want spiritual assurance that everything's going to be fine, everything's going to work out. They got a young, untrained, unpopular ruler and a less popular bride on the throne. And to make things even worse, the nation only has one fragile heir who could die at any moment, doctors unable to cure him. So now that we've set the stage, let's check out uh, how Rasputin plays into all this by heading into a Time Suck Timeline. 1869, Grigory Yevimovich Rasputin is born to a peasant family. Uh, most likely peasants who at some point in their recent ancestry uh, relocated to Siberia in an effort to escape Eastern Russian feudalism. And they, uh, and they settled in a small Siberian village of uh, Prokoskye. Pro Prokoskye, there we go, Prokoskye. A lot of fuck. these Russians were never, it's like, uh, they never wanted to do like a four-letter word. It's always a long word with a lot of constants. They learned that from the Hungarians. Uh, yeah, and, and he was born on January 10th, 1869 to Yefim and Anna. Like many peasants, his life be, uh, begins with unremarkable surroundings and limited chances for greatness. Siberia is incredibly desolate, comes from a hardworking family, relatively prosperous peasant farmers who successfully worked their land and also raised horses. comes from a seemingly normal family, but Rasputin gets a reputation early on for being abnormal. Uh, In the summer of 18778 year old Grigory Rasputin and his 12-year-old brother Dimitri, who's 12, go swimming in a local river, and Dimitri gets pulled into the current, and it takes a long time for him to get out of the cold Siberian water. He's eventually pulled out, but he soon dies thereafter of pneumonia, and Grigory is devastated. He goes into a period of deep depression for about two years, and then around 1879, he begins to get a reputation for the possession of strange powers. Other villagers begin to believe he can read their minds, he can supposedly cure sick farm animals just by touching them. Uh, although at this point in his life he he's no more religious than anyone else, uh, and even but even though he's no more religious than anyone else, people you know start to attribute his powers to God. He just kind of has this uh, kind of label of of a holy man kind of thrust upon him. I think people started kind of thinking this stuff uh, partly because he's a fucking weird looking dude. Just, just see some pictures. Look look him up, or just go to timeslickpodcast He does have like the weirdest eyes I've ever seen. They are like strangely mesmerizing. You know and he probably, you know he had the basic features as a kid. Like he looks like the dude. Who would be able to heal shit or hypnotize you or read your mind? And uh, and, and again, although his, his powers are attributed to God, uh, definitely not a an actual holy man. Uh, he was also supposedly very sexually active from an early age, uh, quite promiscuous, in fact, and strangely sexually charismatic. Uh, he also seemed to be like a little date rapey from everything I read. Like, dude was never charged with rape, but he was, uh, you know, he was into like, I would say, super aggressively hitting on women. Like, just grabbing their breasts out in, like, public. Just grabbing assets when he just fell like, like... just sneaking up behind women and trying to undo their bodices. Like, that kind of shit. And, uh, apparently he received a decent share of bites, hits, kicks from village women. He's also known to, uh, drink it up. Uh, get pretty drunk around town. The drunk part I totally get. And the sleeping around part, minus the sexual assaulting, uh, I also get. He's living in a town of, of nothing. Just a town of nothing in the middle of nowhere. It's so desolate. Out in western Siberia. Even today, it doesn't even have a proper Wikipedia page. Like everything has a Wikipedia page. Every town, not this town. Uh, it does, but like it's like two sentences. There's no information on it because there's just nothing nothing there. You know? It's uh, to get a feel for it. I'd I look at a Google satellite photos of the town. I had to like zoom in from the satellite photos. It's just fucking nothing. Just a s- bunch of small farms next to one another. No more than 100 and 150 buildings in total. Maybe like a hand, like two or three stores, it looks like. It's just, this is where he grew up. And that's now. It's like that now. Back then, I'm sure it was like, you know, Uh, church, bar, slash supply store, and then farms. Uh, In 1866, when Rasputin's 19, he heads over to uh, Abalak, Siberia, another shithole Cossack town in the middle of nowhere, populated only by farmers and horses, and the occasional farmer who probably fucks his horse. Come on, you know someone did it! Uh, You know, to do some more drunken grab-assing. And there he meets a peasant girl named Proskoya Dubrovina, one of the few women in the area. He can't get to sleep with him immediately, so he marries her. Uh, a bit later in 1887, and he brings her back to his village. What? What a lucky lady! What? You're going to take me out of my very tiny shithole town, to to another uh tiny shithole town where I don't even have friends or family. <laughs> Hooray! What a what a lucky girl I am. Well, according to historian and author of Rasputin: Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, Douglas Smith, Rasputin uh, Prescobia uh, would have seven kids over the next few years. Sounds like a lot. Well, it's not like there was an OBGYN prescribing the pill back then or condoms at some local 7-Eleven. Uh, you couldn't even pull out back then. Yeah, the pull-out method wasn't invented until 1917 uh, when MacArthur Evans uh, thought someone was trying to break into his home when he was seconds away from orgasm with his wife. He spun around, uh, ejaculates onto the floor, and then he realized it was just a dog. Uh, and then realized, hey, that was kind of fun. i want to try that again. And then years later realized that this new habit of his was why he and his wife couldn't get pregnant. So there's that little tidbit that I just made up. Of course, that's not true. Uh, they'd eventually have seven kids, but uh, only three made it to adulthood because 19th century Siberia is not a great place to have a baby. It's fucking cold and desolate. And uh, then, for reasons unknown to history, Rasputin started to drink more than usual uh, and he started to uh, get into some legal trouble around town. It's disputed whether or not he was charged with horse thievery, uh, blasphemy, petty theft. And other crimes, what's not disputed is that he did start to cause problems around town. Villagers don't like it uh, when you're, you know, getting drunk and, and uh, you know, possibly committing crimes and definitely fucking their wives and daughters. And Rasputin, you know, he was, he was getting busy with anything that basically had breasts and a pulse. Well, in 1897, the Russian wild man, whose wife was somehow cool with his infidelities, or at least appeared to be, saying he was, quote, man enough for more than one woman... Uh, is either run out of town or chooses to leave town, depending on what historian's uh, account you read, and he sets out on a a religious pilgrimage. And Siberia was full of religious mystics at this time. Uh, I kind of mentioned that earlier just briefly. You know, it's like a dumping ground, not only for peasants looking to escape feudalism or post-feudalism poverty, but also for, like, recently released prisoners, for faith healers, and for members of strange religious sects, you know, that were not... uh, not well liked by the Russian Orthodox Church, he makes it north to the Saint Nicholas Monastery in uh, Verkyotoria, fucking whatever. Not all these places have pronunciation videos, and I don't speak Russian. Uh, he he makes it to the Saint Nicholas Monastery in big ass V word in the Ural Mountains, and he meets a mystic named Makary who changes uh, um, changes him kind of like a uh, big influence in his life. You know, this is this is a guy who, uh, you know, has kind of like wandered around Siberia and been part of like this kind of mysticism movement. And he's just a different type of religious person. And and Rasputin is kind of mesmerized by him. And I guess he comes home uh, a momentarily changed man a few months later. He's not drinking anymore, not causing problems around town. He's trying to be a good all around citizen now, but it it doesn't last long and uh, it doesn't stay long. And he begins to take uh, more pilgrimage pilgrimages, Uh, sometimes, I guess, lasting up to like a year or more. You know, uh, sometimes only gone from home and his family for a few weeks. Very tolerant wife. Uh, I don't know. I guess it was just different back then what people would put up with. Um, you know, sometimes he would stay in other towns, make a name for himself in other towns. Sometimes he's out in the woods, sometimes uh, bathing, sometimes not bathing. Sometimes not even touching his body with his hands for weeks at a time. He's trying to find God. Not sure uh, if he does find God, uh, but he definitely finds some weirdos. Uh, during one of his pilgrimages, he uh, he crosses paths with members of one of the weirdest religious sects I've ever read about, known as the Kleesti, and check this shit out. Uh, the Klisti were Russian Christians who had renounced the priests and in scriptural interpretation of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, and rather than doing your best not to sin, like, you know, most um, Christian, you know, uh, denominations believe, like, by basically like all of the other ones, other than weird cults, uh, the Klisti believed it was very important to sin. You're supposed to sin. Uh, especially carnally sin. That's like the best kind of sinning you're supposed to do. And they had, and they had this crazy ritual where they would meet in some secret place like a crypt or a basement, some fucking weird place. And they would just gather and pray and sing and dance and just whip themselves up into a, a emotional fervor. And then they would just, after the dancing, they were just like getting more and more worked up and dancing louder. And then they would like whirl about and sing and keep whirling and get dizzy and just work themselves in some kind of spiritualistic ecstasy. They'd be speaking in tongues, be taken in by the spirit, all, a lot of dramatic stuff. And then they would just keep going and going until they physically collapsed And then uh, (laughs) this is when things uh, really get, really gets weird. After the collapse part, as they start to get their energy back, they'd have a huge orgy. Not kidding. Seriously. Once they'd done their whole spinning singing ritual, fucking orgy time. So you see, pray, sing, dance, spin, collapse, orgy. Uh, Because the Ecclesi believed that by committing carnal sins, they could repent more fervently and therefore get closer to God than they would have been able to if they didn't have anything to repent for. Uh, They actually called it sinning to drive out sin. And sounds kind of great. You know? It does sound at least way better than your typical Christian get together. Right? I think I just think, look, from an outsider's perspective, I think more people go to church if they started doing that kind of stuff. You know? It's like, what am I gonna have to do at your church? Uh, well we're gonna we're gonna pray for a long time. Uh, that doesn't sound very fun. Oh, okay, that's okay. Uh, after that we're gonna we're gonna sing for a long time. Uh, sounds a little better, but uh I'm not really that interested in that. Oh, but then we're gonna dance for a long time. That sounds kind of fun, and then we're gonna spin around for a long, long time until we collapse on the floor. That sounds that sounds terrible. Now I'm I'm out. I'm sorry. Thank you for coming by, but I'm out. No, no, no. But then, but then we get up and then we fuck and then we have like a Roman style orgy. Uh, come on, yeah, come on in. Come on in. I'm I'm all ears. I'm all ears. Old horn dog Rasputin has found his religion. Uh, he's into the whole sinning to drive out sinning thing. He's really into that. He loves it. Big fan. So he brings it back home. Sets up a little mini church uh, in the basement of his dad's house. We're still living, and that and that's kind of different than now. Uh, it's not like he was like the one dude in town living in his dad's basement. It was just like families lived together. Uh, was weird to set up a mini Caliste kind of church thing in the basement and hold meetings. And I, yeah, I bet he did. Uh, no one knows for sure what went on in those basement meetings. Uh, it's not like they hired a secretary to take notes, but probably a lot of fucking, probably a whole bunch of that. So now he's back on the outs with the hometown crowd. Uh, you know, so he starts taking more, more of his pilgr- pilgrimages and, uh, he repeats his weird pattern for the rest of his life. He'll befriend like the local religious people in some area, local monks or priests or mystics. They'll become convinced that he's some sort of real kind of healer, that he actually is touched by God, that he truly has special powers. That he's some kind of living saint or prophet, you know, this, this prestigious holy man. But then there will also be rumors that he's fucking like half of the town. It's the strangest combo. He's like Don Juan, you know, and the holiest of all men at the same time. Religious and holy, yet preposterously sinful. People don't know what to do with this guy. It's like you want to tell him to get the fuck out of town, but then if he really, you know, does have some kind of special powers sent to him from God, you don't want to incur God's wrath by getting rid of one of God's chosen people. Uh, And if you're wondering, like, how did he pull this off, like these, these healings? Well, part of it, I think, really, like I said before, was his eyes. He does have, like, one of the strangest gazes I've ever seen. Um, just like yeah, just Google a picture of this guy. Or go to the website. Uh, he he was rumored to be able to dilate his pupils at will. He'd stare like unblinking, also directly into your eyes, you know, which was unnerving. And and he does have these large, sunken, light, cold blue eyes that really just kind of stand out from his otherwise uh, intensely dark, rugged Russian, you know, face. <laughs> I get it, you know. I get it kind of because I because I have a, a slightly similar thing. I've been told that I have, you know, either uh, beautiful or crazy eyes uh, over the course of my lifetime a lot. And I think it's because, you know, especially with my, like, beard and stuff now, it's like I got dark features, dark hair, and then, like, you know, really blue eyes, and it's just unusual. You just don't see it a lot, and you just look very intense. Uh, and Rasputin, um, he does have an intense kind of look. He has He has long, thick, unkempt hair, this huge, untrimmed beard, wild mustache. He's very feral-looking uh you know uh again these big sunken eyes the very dis- disconcerting uh stare i can only imagine how uncomfortable he would make you feel how odd you know his his hygiene was also apparently uh terrible he smelled like an old goat uh that's one person's actual quote he smelled like an old goat uh he he wouldn't bathe for weeks or months at a time uh he routinely he routinely had remnants of old meals in his beard like that was something people noted like he always had fucking shit in his beard old food and yet as repulsive as all that sounds, uh, conventionally unattractive, as he looked, he was legendarily charismatic. Priests would fall under this holy man's spell, you know, and women were routinely seduced by him. He wasn't just all just, you know, aggressive grab-ass, grab-assing women did, like, were into him. Uh, despite rumors that Rasputin was having sex with some of his female followers, uh, he wins over the father uh, superior of the Seven Lakes Monastery outside Kazan, as well as local church officials, Andre and Bishop Krasanos, and they end up giving him a letter of recommendation to Bishop Sergei, uh, the rector of the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary at the Alexander Nevsky Monastery. And that's how he gets to St. Petersburg. That's how he gets close to the czars. And he gets there between 1903 and 1905. 1905, Rasputin's making a name for himself in St. Petersburg. Uh, remember, this is the age of spiritualism, especially for the noble class, and St. Petersburg is, royals, uh, is Russia's royal city, full of wealthy nobility, who aren't worried about starving or fighting some war. These be left time to fucking dick around with seances and mediums. Right? A bunch of fucking trust funders hanging out, playing Ouija board shit. Uh, um, and, and again, this is the stuff Houdini was fighting against in America at the same time when he was you know, busy exposing mediums as frauds when he wasn't performing sensational escape attempts. This is roughly the same period in history when the, uh, the head of the Theosophical Society in New York City is telling people about the history of the lost city of Atlantis from that episode, where apparently wizard fights were fucking going down and dragons and chimeras uh, were involved and chimeras were being having sex, people were having sex with them. All kinds of weird shit's being thought about at this time. There were people are entertaining a lot of crazy ideas people have always entertained a lot of crazy ideas but it's usually people on the fringes of society in Russia it was like the heads of state were like, nah, yeah, yeah, that sounds legit it would, it would be like if Congress and the Senate were just fucking Ouija boarding it up, like if they, like if they were holding seances to determine the fate of our country, it's so insane and the Tsarina, uh, the queen essentially, the empress, Alexandra uh, you know, was as uh, I said earlier especially superstitious even for these times you know, meeting mystics all the time, and so by the time Rasputin makes it to town, uh, you know, she's in. She's into this stuff, and this is how Rasputin gains access to the Tsars, and, and which does make sense, you know? Like, imagine if you believed in wizards. You know, not only believed in them, but wanted more than anything in the world to meet a real wizard. And then finally, you meet a man who genuinely appears to be a fucking wizard. Long beard, Merlin hat, reputation for wizardry. You'd be enamored as you'd never been before. You know, and that's kind of what happens with Rasputin. She'd met these other kind of you know, uh, you know, mystics and stuff, but none of them seem to have Rasputin's powers. The Siberian healer shows up to meet the Tsars. He'd been sent for because Alexandra is desperate to cure her hemophiliac son. Like he's getting sick all the time. He's recently died a few times, and uh, right now he's real sick. He's coming down with a horrible fever. His doctors don't know if he's going to live through it. Rasputin comes over, asks to see the boy. Wakes him up, talks to him, puts his hands on him, prays for him. Boy, falls back asleep. Fever breaks, wakes up feeling virtually good as new. And just like that, pow, Rasputin, royal peasant, is in with his arse. Uh, and this is after, uh, you know, the rumors of him healing other people, rumors of him healing, you know, sick livestock as a kid. How do you do this shit? No one knows. It turns out uh, he did it long enough uh, where it'd be hard to chalk it up as just a total lucky run. That's, uh, that's what historian Dr. Joseph T. Furman thinks. He's a Rasputin scholar. And he actually believes, this historian, believes that Rasputin did have some kind of in, in, uh, inexplicable healing powers. You know, basically, how else could you explain what he was just constantly rumored to be able to do? So there's something, I don't know, he's either like the best con man ever, like one of the best, or he, he had something going on with him. You know, because he's not doing like the uh, the mediums I kind of talked about in the Houdini episode with a big stage show. You know, he's just going up and people are getting fucking better after being touched by him. So I don't know. In the case of uh, Alexei specifically, uh, some other historians such as Pierre uh, Gilliard have speculated that the bleeding likely stopped as a result of Rasputin's insistence on disallowing the administration of aspirin now known to be a blood thinning agent and not because of any mystical powers he had. So it might've been just like a lucky break. It's not like he knew about that, but he's like, yeah, he doesn't need these pills. I got him. And then it turns out (laughs) just not taking the pills made a huge improvement on his health. Uh, Others speculated that with the information he got from a confidant, uh, he had at the royal court. He did know this lady, this f- best friend of the Tsarina, this Anna uh, v- of Uh Rasputin timed his uh, interventions for when Alexei was like kind of on the mend, you know? So he just showed up at the right time to claim all the credit. I don't know. However he did it, the Tsarina was amazed and, and immediately enlisted the services of Rasputin as a close advisor. Um, but, but, uh, and, and he didn't just, you know, seemingly heal Alexei once. He healed him over and over again for the next decade. Uh, and he also helped seal the fate of the entire Romanov family over that decade. Uh, now protected by his relationship with the royal family, Rasputin brings his old uh, Siberian drinking and sexcapading ways uh, properly to St. Petersburg. Starts sleeping with a good chunk of the St. Petersburg population, prostitutes, aristocrats, whoever needs to get closer to God through some good old carnal sin, I guess. The uh, the clergy members of the Russian church catch wind of all of Rasputin's sexual wheelings and dealings. They finally had enough, and they take him aside, telling him he has to stop sinning. Uh, and, then, and then there's the legend that they literally beat him with a crucifix, like a big old Russian crucifix. They fucking smack him around with it, trying to knock the devil out of him. Well, Rasputin doesn't like this. A lot of people don't like getting hit with big crucifixes. And he tells Alexandra that the two priests tried to kill him, and she banishes them from the city. This is her son's protector. Uh, one of the men, Iliodor, fled to Finland disguised as a woman, where he allegedly began to plot the death of Rasputin, uh, who he began to believe was the Antichrist himself. Uh, Rasputin's ways began to tarnish the royal family's reputation around town you know, and then the rest of the country. First off, it just wasn't kosher for a peasant to be hanging out with the Tsar and Tsarina. Uh, because of Alexander's, you know, fascination with Rasputin and believing in his healing powers, he was given full access to the royal court. Like, he could drop by uninvited. Very regular. Very, very irregular. Uh, that's not, not how things worked back then. Checking, he could check on the royal kids whenever he wanted, full access to their rooms and everything. Uh, he referred to the Tsar and Tsarina's mama and papa, which was weird. Uh, and he wasn't, you know, just a peasant doing this. He was a fucking filthy peasant. Like, literally filthy. Like, the dude had shit in his mangy beard, he stunk, he had long, greasy hair, he looked fucking insane, loved to get drunk and brag about, you know, his closeness to the czars. Uh, so when he's, you know, not hanging on the czar and czarina, he's out getting hammered. You know, he's a this dirty dude, aggressively hitting on women, if not outright telling everyone, he, you know, he's, uh, he's super tight with the king and queen, he's definitely letting them believe that, and people like to gossip. You know, this is juicy shit. People start to wonder what kind of power this holy madman has over their rulers. And they start to think, because of his reputation, that Rasputin is sleeping with the Tsarina herself. Uh, most historians don't think that's true. Uh, they don't think he was, you know, dumb enough to do that. But they do think he was probably uh, egotistical enough to let other people assume that and to kind of lead them to believe that. Tsarina isn't helping uh, uh, this r- rumor either. She's become a more, more and more avid disciple of Rasputin, providing him gifts— and writing some kind of weird, scandalous letters to him. I mean, people did kind of write a little more romantically back then, even in platonic relationships. But she would say stuff like, quote, Only then is my soul at rest when you, my teacher, are sitting beside me and I am kissing your hands and leaning on your savory shoulders. Savory shoulders doesn't sound friendly. That sounds more than friendly. Why would you describe somebody's shoulders as savory? Unless you were into them. Anyway, uh, no one understands why the Tsar czar and Tsarina are keeping him around, by the way. That's what makes this all the weirder. Because, you know, remember, uh, Alexei's uh, hemophilia is a state secret. So the Russian population, they're not be like, well, yeah, he's a fucking weirdo, but he's helping out with the boy. You know? No, they just, they have no idea. Like, they're like, why the fuck is this guy around? Why are they keeping him this weirdo around? And Russians, you know, very superstitious at this time, and rumors start to spread that he's not a holy man, but that he's possessed by the devil. And he's got the Romanovs under some kind of spell right and russia is not doing well during this time so that's not helping them out you know they just gotten their ass kicked by the japanese the economy has been slowed industrialized it's floundering they start to wonder if rasputin is trying to bring the nation down to give like a modern equivalent it would be like all right whatever you think about trump let's let's say you like trump let's say but then let's say the economy let's say you're like okay he's a good businessman you know president trump he's a good business guy he's going to get the economy really really going but then he doesn't let's say the economy starts to tank and then let's say you know with the North Korea situation, let's say he does get into a war with North Korea and they somehow kick our fucking asses. Like imagine like public morale, economy's bad, <laughs> North Korea's just kicked your And then on top of all of that, uh, he invites Charlie Sheen to come help run the White House, right? Like you haven't heard of Charlie Sheen? Let's just, you know Charlie Sheen has just been smoking crack in private for the last couple of years. He brings him to into the White House, and then Charlie Sheen is like you know back a couple of years ago like Tiger Blood Charlie Sheen. He's just fucking blatantly hitting on reporters. He's fucking half the people in D.C. You know, it's assumed. He's fucking Melania, uh, which which is even weirder now that he's, you know, uh, come out HIV positive. But uh, imagine the gossip, right? Only anarchists and lunatics would still support the president in that situation. So, you know, the people, not very supportive of the Romanovs. They're like, what the fuck, dude? The Country's in turmoil, and you got Captain Lunatic hanging out with his fucking food beard going on his face? Ah, uh, so after a while, other than Alexandra and to a lesser extent, uh, Nicholas, no one in the royal family even wants this guy around, you know? They don't like the uh, bad reputation he's given them. The pressure from the public, from the church, and from the government, and the royal family itself is to get rid of Rasputin. Well, finally, March 1912, the Tsar has had enough, caves into the pressure of the scandal, rumors, and constant harm to the reputation, he orders Rasputin to return to Siberia. And given no other choice, Rasputin does so. Now, it's probably time for him to visit the family. He's abandoned anyway, so, you know, no big whoop. Well, October 1912, just a few months' time, The Romanovs find themselves in need of another miracle. Alexei has had a slight boating accident, something that would have left nothing but a bruise on most people, but his body is swelling from internal bleeding. After 12 days of ineffective treatment, he receives his last rites. Death announcements are prepared for the young boy. At this point, Alexandra reaches back out to the only option she feels she has left, sends a frantic telegram to Rasputin, pleading for his help within hours. Rasputin, of course he's ready to receive the telegram. It's not like he's got a lot going on back in his fucking Siberian shithole. Uh, He sends a cable back to her, telling her that Quote, God has heard your fears. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. And somehow, through some fucking miracle, Alexei doesn't die. He's healed. So yet again, uh, no ex- medical explanation of any sort. And as you can imagine, old Raspy, he is back in St. Petersburg in no time after that. All right? He's he's in again. And then uh, and now he's back and forth, you know, for the next little while between uh, uh, Pekroski and St. Petersburg, you know, hanging out with the royals, going back, I don't know, fucking a whole bunch of people in his town, whatever that lunatic was up to. Uh, sometimes home of the fam, most of the time, slanging his monk dick around St. Petersburg, doing his mystic shit. Well, on July 12th, 1914, uh, when he's back in his hometown in Fres Rasputin is nearly killed. He's stabbed in the gut outside of his home by a 33-year-old, noseless former prostitute named uh, Chinyonya Guseva, who tried to rip his intestines out of his stomach after stabbing him. I know how crazy this sounds, but it's true. I looked at a lot of sources. I, I've seen – I found pictures of this woman. She truly has no nose. Like it all. It's very unusual to see someone without a nose, if you haven't before. Uh, of, of course she was apprehended after stabbing him. How easy was she to catch? You know, she's like pinky thumbs. Like that guy from my stand-up. It's like Siberia doesn't, doesn't have a lot of people in general. There are very, you know, few potential sub- suspects for any given crime. Just because there's not very many people at all. And there's very few uh, suspects without noses. Like, I'm guessing there's one. So when the police were like, who did this to you? And he was like, ah, some lady without a nose. Both police, because there had to be two of them for this joke to work at the exact t- same time said, "Oh, you mean Chiona And then they were like, ha, jinx, yo me some bread or uh, jinx, yomi uh, bowl of cold porridge or uh, uh, jinx, yell me a scrap of horse meat I don't know whatever you know they, this, they said whatever Siberians snacked on back then. Anyway, uh, uh, syphilis is re- referenced as responsible as a possible reason for her nose to be missing, although she denied that. However, she was a former prostitute. Uh, Syphilis was relatively common, and I found this out because of this episode. If left untreated, it can produce lesions called gummas, which are some of the grossest things I've ever read about. And if you're trying to lose your appetite, uh, do a Google image search of syphilis gummas. Holy fuck, it's terrifying. It is, oh, it's, oh my gosh, these poor people that have this. It's so, so terrible looking. Uh, It's basically akin to like, you know, like leprosy. Basically, when your body's immune system gives up on killing the syphilis bacteria, it goes into this last-ditch effort to kind of slow the spread of the bacteria in in your body, and it attempts to wall off, like the syphilis bacteria, and kind of contain it. And and then to kill it, it just decides to kill everything in the containment zone. You know, so like it'll form this liquid filled kind of circular lesion, and then the tissue in the center of this lesion starts to die. It just kills, your body kills off its own tissue. And you can get these things on your nose, and so your body will rot your own nose off to try to get rid of the syphilis bacteria in your nose. So, you know, enjoy that stew you're eating. Anywho, are uh, you done throwing up yet? Okay, good. I'll wait. I'll wait. Okay, last last throw up? Okay. So this poor woman, uh, formal disciple, it turns out, of Iliador. Remember, the holy man banished by the Tsarina for beating Rasputin with that cross earlier. The man who fled to Finland and allegedly plotted Rasputin's death. Uh, and he was he's the man alleged to have sent Chayona to kill him. Uh, this guy's whole life was just so fucking ridiculous. Of, of course a noseless woman would be sent by a man who would beat him with a cross to kill him. Everything in this dude's story is so over the top. Well, Rasputin doesn't die, but he does develop a lifelong addiction to painkillers after this woman begins to drink more than ever. And while he's recovering in Pro- uh, Pro-Kros-Kie, uh Nicholas II, old Nicholas, decides it's time to join World War I, which has just broken out. Uh, Actually, the event that started World War I, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand uh, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and his wife in Sarajevo, happened on the exact same day Rasputin was almost assassinated by the noseless woman, uh, June 28th, 1914. Now, if you look into this, some sources say he was stabbed on July 12th, but I'm going to go with June 28th because it's more Rasputin-style to be fucking full of weird coincidences. Uh, Had he uh, not been stabbed, he may have been able to talk the Tsar out of joining a war he felt would be disastrous to Russia. He wrote the Tsar a letter from his hospital trying to uh, persuade him from not uh, participating in the war. He predicted disaster if Russia were to join the fight,
1: saying uh, stuff like, here's part of this letter. A terrible storm cloud hangs over Russia. Disaster, grief, murky darkness, and no light. All ocean of tears, there is no counting them, and so much blood. I can find no words to describe the horror. We will all drown in blood. The disaster is great. The misery, infinite. So uh, you're not in favor of the war then.
0: Oh, right. Infinite misery. That is a bad thing, isn't it? Um, I'm kind of proud of that little uh, impromptu Russian accent I just pulled out there. I know it's very, uh, what, Drago in fucking the Rocky franchise. It's probably not even uh, accurate at all. But in my head, I'm like, out of your shitty accents, Dan? That one was one of your better ones. Okay, so, well, Russia does join the war. In late July, Russia begins to mobilize its military towards its western borders. Germany warns Russia to stop mobilizing on July 31st, and Russia's like, no, uh, we're going to keep doing it. And so then on August 1st, uh, Germany declares war on Russia, and shit is on. 1914, despite the few previous defeats, uh, Russia does have the largest standing military in the world. They're pretty excited to go to war initially. You know, they got six and a half million infantrymen. However, uh, they did also have only like four and a half uh, million rifles. So, you know, they're big, uh, not terribly well organized, not terribly prepared. And they're not easily mobilized. You know, they're spread out over all of Russia, a nation that only has that one big old railroad track connecting the east to the west. You know, it's like thousands and thousands of miles across. Uh, And they have an idiot for their czar. Nicholas II is not a military tactician. For the first few weeks of the war, uh, Nicholas is the most popular he's ever been with the Russian people. He's fucking loving it. Right? The nation is ready to reassert its military dominance. He's going to be part of it. He's going to help reclaim its past glory, glory for the Tsar, and then the fighting begins, and uh, all that goes away. Uh, the Russian offensive in East Prussia has started You know well enough, with the 1st Russian Army forced the Germans westward from the border. Uh, meanwhile, the Russian 2nd Army invades from the south, hoping to cut the Germans off in, in an area around the city of uh, Konigsberg, uh, but they don't do that. Instead, the Germans exploit the distance between the two Russian armies, outflanking them and then completely destroying the Russian second army before the first army could come to their aid in the first battle of the Missourian Lakes, which lasted from September 17th to September 14th. In the end, nearly half a million Russian soldiers are brutally defeated by just over 200,000 German soldiers. 10,000 Germans are either killed, wounded, or captured compared to 125,000 Russians. And this early battle sets the tone for how the rest of the war is going to go for Nicholas and Russia. Uh, by the end of the war, Russia would lose nearly two million soldiers. Another two and a half million would be taken captive or go missing, and nearly another five million would be wounded. So uh, they didn't do well. World War One, like at all. Uh, after losing hundreds of thousands of troops, Germany's superior military tactics to kick off the war. Uh, Tsar Nicholas, you know, uh, he makes what might have been his worst mistake of his career, and he's like, you know what? I'm gonna fucking I'm gonna leave St. Petersburg. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go do things myself out there. I'm gonna go to the front lines, and uh, be there with my troops. And uh, I'm really going to steer this ship back in the right direction because you know what? I played Stratego uh, several times when I was a kid, and you know, eventually you're going to get that flag. You know, sure you're going to lose, you hit a few bombs, but eventually. (laughs) But so anyway, he goes there. And, uh, and he leaves his wife to hold the fort in Russia while he's waging war with Germany. And as the death toll mounts, Russian citizens are looking for a distraction initially from the war, and Rasputin does, you know, provide some initial fun entertainment. His indulgences continue as he uses uh, drugs, uh, he's drinking, he's enjoying prostitutes, he's womanizing both the peasants and the Russian nobility, and continuing to brag, you know, all that Rasputin shit. He's, and he really gets especially out of control <laughs> after Nicholas leaves town. Uh, like one night, for example, he's dining at a restaurant, and he just decides to whip his dick out. Not kidding. There's a bunch of stories about this. Uh the same event. He just unzips um, his pants, just whips the dick out, and then uh <laughs> he doesn't like whip it out and like, ha, and then snip snip it back in. He's like, gotcha. No, he whips it out and leaves it out and then waves it around in front of the other <laughs> in front of the other diners while handing out cards that say love freely. Oh, he had to have been so hammered when he did that. Uh he then declares that he shouldn't be shocked or offended because he does this all the time with the royals. Then they don't care. You know, they don't have a problem with it. Zarina loves it when I whip my dick out and hand out cards. So the Russian people are now really starting to wonder, like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, Further adding to the peasants' concerns, uh, Russia's cities are becoming plagued by shortages of food and clothing as the war continues. Uh, Since the assassination attempt earlier on Rasputin, Nicholas has been having him followed by Russian secret police. Some articles you come across say the secret police are following him to to build a case against him and convince the Tsarina, who's his only true fan... You know, you get the feeling that Nicholas just tolerates his shit out of respect to his wife when he doors. You know, they're trying to con- convince her to toss him out of St. Petersburg for good. Other articles say the police uh, are there for his safety so he doesn't get stabbed again. Either way, these guys are taking notes on his behavior, and, it, and he has gone
1: full tiger blood Charlie Sheen. Uh, these are some of their notes. October 11th, Rasputin came home dead drunk at 1 a.m. and assaulted the concierge's wife. October 12th, 10 p.m., a woman whose identity was not determined left abruptly slamming the apartment door. Rasputin opened it, laughed, slammed it again. Rasputin came home dead drunk at 7 a.m., smashed the pane of glass in the door. Rasputin sent for a masseuse. When she refused to come, he sent for Seamstress, who came instead. December 1st, from the monastery, Rasputin visited a prostitute and took her to hotel. He visited the offices of two religious newspapers after, then took another prostitute home. Then... That evening, he went to the palace. The Dark One walked around the streets late at night, accosting women with wild suggestions. After visiting two prostitutes, he went to see the Golvitz. The Dark One left around 2 p.m. and again hired a prostitute. They went to the bathhouse with her. I feel like if you could hear him say that, he'd be like, again, more prostitutes, so many.
0: This guy's fucking out of control. The secret police take their documentation to his arena, but they're quickly dismissed, as is every other politician or friend who speaks out against Rasputin. She believes that her husband's enemies are spreading lies about Rasputin, her son's protector, trying to harm her family. Meanwhile, while she's protecting him, you know, rumors of Rasputin's strange sexual rituals are just spreading around town more, you know? Uh, You know, like weird sexual religious rituals are taking place. Uh, He'd he'd flagellate women sometimes, apparently, like uh, beating the sin out of them. And then he would, would, uh, you know, let them access his holy dick to get closer to God. Just check this shit out.
1: One disciple, Olga Lochtina, became convinced that Rasputin was Christ and that she was the Holy Virgin. Abandoning her children and wealthy husband, she descended into madness and was seen holding Rasputin's penis while screaming, you are Christ and I am your you. He said she was (gasps) a skunk who demanded sin. Wow. It was not sex. It was way to God. Uh He took... Everything which was terrible in their souls. They became absolutely clean. They became like children. They like themselves in that moment because they were on the heaven.
0: Wow. Man, dude had some, some serious game. My God. No uh no you're you're not giving me a blowjob. You're no, you're you're sucking your way to heaven. No, yeah, that's what you're doing. My dick is merely a conduit to God. Sure, I mean, sure, you may you may start to hear me breathe heavily and thrust my hips and finally orgasm, but I take no pleasure in this. I, I just get caught up in the ecstasy of our Lord. What a fucking scam this guy was running. Okay, well, as the war drags on in 1915 and 1916, Rasputin continues to behave like an insane sex addict uh, in St. Petersburg. The casualties uh, continue to mount up for Nicholas's armies. Wartime inflation and shortages quadruple the price of bread. Vladimir Lenin is publishing communist propaganda from outside the nation, convincing more and more Russians that the war is part of some just an imperialistic agenda. And yet another example of why the monarchy must be overthrown, the royals of Russia, with the lone exception of Tsarina, uh, can begin to see the writing on the wall. A revolution's brewing. Rasputin is partly to blame. Many believe he has brought the devil into the Russian royal court, and he's to blame for Russia's troubles. The citizenry, they're losing more and more faith in the decision-making abilities of the Tsar and Tsarina by the day. By the end of 1916, panic is starting to set in in St. Petersburg. You know, goods and fuel for, for heat are running scarce. The Rasputin distraction isn't funny anymore. Germany is slaughtering their sons, fathers, and husbands for the third year in a row as their German-bred Tsarina, an inept Tsar, you know, continue to stand by Rasputin. And they still don't know why. They still don't know about Alexei. You know, Rasputin himself begins to believe at this point that he's going to be assassinated. He makes some financial arrangements for his wife and kids. He, he writes a letter to the Tsar expressing his fear for his own life and ends up making an eerily accurate statement dark prediction that we're going to run into later uh, for the royal family as well
1: now he says i shall depart this life before january 1st if one of your relatives causes my death then none of your children will remain alive for more than two years and if they do they will beg for death as they will see the defeat of russia see the antichrist coming plague poverty destroyed churches and desecrated sanctuaries where everyone is dead the russians are You will be killed by the Russian people, and the people will be cursed and will serve as the devil's weapon, killing each other everywhere.
0: And then, in December of 1916, a few Russians decide to take matters into their own hands and rid Mother Russia of its devil, Rasputin. Rasputin's death is perhaps the most legendary story told about him out of all the things we've talked about. So let's hop out of this timeline and really examine it uh, with a closer look.
1: It's unbelievable, but
0: true. Till next time, suckers. Okay, so let me just open the examination of Rasputin's death by saying the story I will tell uh, maybe true, partially true, or mostly legend. Exactly how he died and who exactly uh, killed Rasputin is definitely uh, still disputed. A 2004 BBC documentary claimed that a British uh, secret agent, Oswald Rayner, killed Rasputin, shooting him in the head at close range. Rayner was a uh, MI6 agent, the the agency that inspired James Bond, uh, the motive. Well, apparently the British were uh, not extremely concerned about Rasputin's, or, or not extremely happy about Rasputin's displacement of uh, pro-British ministers. Uh, while Nicholas is out in the front lines, Rasputin is back in St. Petersburg convincing Alexandra to get rid of various politicians who are kind of pro-British, people he doesn't care for in the Russian government. Uh, more concerning for them is that he's insisting on uh, that they should withdraw Russian troops from World War I, which would not help at all the British war efforts. Uh, Raymer knew Prince Felix uh, the guy who uh, most people think uh, killed uh, Rasputin, um, and he may have been present on the night of Rasputin's murder. So there is that, and there are all of the findings of the autopsy report on Rasputin that where no tri- traces of cyanide uh, were found in his, in his autopsy. Uh, the man who supposedly supplied the poison that was used to try and kill Rasputin, Doctor Lazevert, confessed on his deathbed that last-minute conscience and his Hippocratic oath made it made him switch uh, from uh, from uh, arsenic to a harmless substance at the last second. Uh auto- autopsy reports also indicate that Rasputin was dead before being tossed in the river, which contradicts his legend. But for our episode, let's go with the story Prince Felix told. This is the most common story about how Rasputin died. This is the legendary one. Uh the one definitely most uh, associated uh most often associated with his death and the one that Prince Felix would write about later in in memoirs. So let's let's have some fun with it. Um all right, so December 16th 1916, there's a 29-year-old uh, uh prince Uh, was the apparent ringleader of Rasputin's assassination, Prince Felix uh, Yusupov, a member of the Tsar's family, husband to the Tsar's niece, a man set to inherit the largest fortune in all of Russia, and he was known to be an avid drug user, he was a partier, he threw uh, extravagant parties, and he was married to a stunning woman named Irina. But even a spoiled, rich, lazy aristocrat uh, has his breaking point. Prince Felix uh, recruits the Grand Duke, Dmitry uh, Pavlovich, the Tsar's first cousin, and they begin conspiring. Uh, with an up-and-coming right-wing politician named Vladimir uh, Purishkovich. Uh, so Felix and Pavlovich had had enough of Rasputin damaging their family's reputation, and Kavish, uh sees him as a danger to the overall health of the nation. Uh, they talk loudly of their plan as they're plotting, you know, to everyone who will listen. No, no attempt at secrecy is being made, because they want their name cemented in history as the saviors of Russia when they kill the son of a bitch. And, and really, there is no need to be too secretive about it, other than the Tsarina, you know, other than maybe Alexei. You know, uh, and the strange gullible women using his dick as a conduit to the Lord and weird sex rituals. Almost everybody else wants this fucking guy dead. Well, on the first available night that the Grand Duke uh, is available, Rasputin is invited to a party in the basement of Prince Felix's palace. Uh, they play to Rasputin's sexual appetite by by promising that he's going to get a chance to meet his his beautiful wife, Irina. And if you're wondering, like, why would this dude just offer up his wife? Why would this you know super rich a prominent Russian citizen offered his wife up to have sex with Rasputin. Why would Rasputin believe that? Well, it was widely known that Prince Felix was, uh, he was gay. Everybody in aristocratic circles knew this and that his wife was essentially just a business partner and just to make him look good to the Russian peasants who may not understand. And, uh, and it's not like Rasputin cared about sleeping with people's wives. I mean, this is a dude who's going to, he'll fuck almost anything. Uh, they know that he has heard um, uh, rumors of the drugs and the drinking that the prince is known for. So they make it known that you know there's going to be plenty of wine, there's going to be drug available. Couldn't find what type of drug they had, but I'm guessing some more opium, since he was addicted to painkillers. Uh, they capitalized on Rasputin's uh, constant desire to be amongst the elite, and he was known to have a voracious appetite for sweets. So they used this to their advantage, you know? It's going to be, oh man, there's going to be lots of pastries, dude. It's going to be, so, be so many cakes. you got to come over. It's going to be a great party. There's going to be my wife who's going to have sex with you, and there's going to be so many cakes. Uh, with the Grand Duke and Prince Felix, they spike the wine and the desserts with cyanide, and then they turn on— <laughs> this is my favorite detail, the whole thing— and then they turn on their one record when he wants music. They have one Yankee Doodle Dandy as they wait for their guests. Such a weird detail. Uh, and by the way, Yankee Doodle Dandy is, is this silly bullshit. If you, don't, if you don't remember this song. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a good one, right? Oh, boy. What a great tune to listen to at a party.
1: Yankee Doodle ah.
0: went
1: to town riding on a pony. Mm-hmm. da 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 da
0: so we listen to that shit on repeat. Apparently, that just makes the whole story even weirder. Weirder. He to Yankee Doodle Dandy on, on repeat. Uh, I wonder whose idea it was to have that record available. I, I hope it was one of the guys' idea. Like maybe like one of the guys just never had a good idea. You know, like Prince Felix is like, okay, I got. I, I'm gonna all offer up my wife. That's gonna get that sexual degenerate into my basement. And then the Grand Duke Dmitri, you know, Pavlovich is like, yeah, yes, that's perfect. That's perfect. And and I. I will cater it with decadent treats because we know he loves treats, right? And then Vladimir uh, Purishkovich is like, "Oh God, there's a good idea. I got a good idea too. I think uh, uh, I will, I will bring, I will bring over Yan- Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'll bring over that, just that one record. Who doesn't love that hot new song? Who doesn't want to be a Yankee Doodle Dandy?" And the other dudes like, um, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, good, yeah, good idea as usual, Vladimir. Anyway, Rasputin arrives. He instantly begins to eat the sweets, uh, set out, drink the wine. He's anxiously waiting to meet Irina. <laughs> Such a weird thing. to Hanging out with some dude. Yeah, my wife will be here in a second to have sex with you. Uh, Felix is hanging out with him downstairs, making him excuses about why Irina is running late. So awkward. You know, I, I'm so sorry that you're not fucking my wife yet. <laughs> I'll, I feel terrible. She, she'll be here soon. She. Oh, and she cannot wait to sleep with you. Of course not. I mean, look at your filthy beard and greasy hair and crazy eye thing you've got going on. What woman, what woman doesn't want to just be sweatily humped by a drugged-out dirty transient? Uh, the other two dudes apparently are waiting upstairs for Rasputin to die from the poison. He, uh, he eats and drinks for like two hours. Nothing happens. So either he's immune, or more likely, you know, maybe that, what that doctor said was true. Maybe he really didn't give him the real cyanide, which that one is hilarious to me. Because then these two guys are just pacing around upstairs while Felix is downstairs. Just, why isn't he fucking dead? How is he not dead? Did you, did you put the cyanide in the gingerbread? Yeah, I put the cyanide in the gingerbread. Did you put it in the maloca cake? Yes. Did you, did you put it in the red currant, Kissel? The, the pastilla? Yes. All the fucking cookies and cakes have cyanide. Not to kill horse. One glass of wine should kill a horse, and that decadent son of a bitch has had ten cookies and five cakes and five candies and seven cups of wine, and he's not even looking pasty. He's not even, he's not even sweaty and peakish. He's, he's the devil. He's the devil. Hell protects him. Uh, Felix is panicking. Rasputin is growing impatient. He's about to leave, right? Uh, Felix, Felix, is thinking like who again? Like who can survive this much cyanide? Remember, these, these are superstitious people. You know, they're fascinated with the occult, with seance's spiritualism. You know, they think he's the Antichrist. They think the demons are protecting him. They're scared out of their minds. Felix can't wait any longer. He doesn't want to risk him going. He doesn't want to have him leaving. So Felix goes upstairs, and he retrieves a gun. He goes back down to the basement, and according to the written record, Prince Felix uh, finds Rasputin downstairs admiring an ornate crucifix, and he's like, aha, now I kill him. Because that crucifix is going to get the demon to calm down, the, the poison eaten demon. He's going to calm down. And uh, God's given me this window, and he takes a shot, and he hits him. He shoots Rasputin. Rasputin falls to the floor. Felix runs upstairs shouting, like, I did it! I did it! He's all happy they've killed Rasputin. They even, like, you know, they make drinks. They're celebrating upstairs. Ah, finally, this poison-eating son of a bitch is, is gone. They're, they've saved Mother Russia. Well, a few rounds of drinks later, Prince Felix uh, returns to the basement. You know, maybe it's a good idea just to confirm he's dead. Let's go check on old little Rasputin. And, uh, and he leans over the body. This legend has it. And when he leans over the body, uh, Ras- Rasputin opens his eyes and says, Bad boy, and then tries to strangle the prince. God, I hope that's true. That's like out of a fucking B horror movie. He, this this guy who's just been shot, poisoned, starts trying to strangle him. Felix is losing his mind. He's squealing, trying to get away. Right? He finally he breaks free. He's running around uh, upstairs. All the guys are freaking out now. Uh, one story says that he he ran into the, his mom's bathroom, vomits, and passes out. God, and I so hope all of this is true. I hope all of it's true. What a fantastic scene that would just pandemonium. The devil's alive downstairs, he can't be poisoned, he can't be shot, he can't be killed. he got three grown Russian men, undoubtedly all crying, stumbling over themselves. I feel like it's like a, a fucking Three Stooges movie at this point. It's like, ah, what do we do? What do we do? What do we- the devil will kill us all! Uh, you know, and I picture him just like running around, running around corners and like bonking into each other, then falling down and then screaming more, you know, and slapping each other. Just like total slapstick mayhem upstairs. Well, Felix claims that he recovers a short time after passing out. These guys get their courage back up. They go back downstairs to finish off a raspy. And then he's missing, which had to make him like, what the fuck? How is he? Where'd he go? And then now they're apparently Rasputin tries to escape out of the courtyard. Uh, and then Purishkovich, he takes the gun, the politician starts firing wildly at Rasputin, hits him twice. Twice more, Rasputin falls to the ground, and then Felix, Felix, uh Prince Felix, who's uh, apparently holding a, r- a rubber truncheon, which is basically like a Russian billy club. That's what he took out, you know? You got uh, Purish Kavish has the gun, and then Felix has the billy club, and he just leaps on Rasputin and just starts beating the shit out of him with this fucking billy club thing. And then the three men, uh, after they th- feel like, he okay, he's gotta be dead now, they drag his body back into the house. They get some rope, you know, uh, and they start tying him up. Uh, just because they're going to go dump him in the river to be absolutely certain he's dead and apparently they say that like while they're tying him up he's still alive, like he wakes up again he's fucking wheezing, he's staring at him out of his one eye, not swollen swollen shut from the beating Uh, so they throw a cloth cloth over him they don't want him looking at him anymore he's creeping him the fuck out They, they wrap him up in the cloth, they throw him in a car drive him to the frozen Neva River and dump him through the ice Well, days later, Rasputin's body is found, and legend has it. Uh, One of his hands has managed to wiggle free from the binding, and there's still water in his lungs, which means that he was still alive when they tossed him in the river. And that's the story that's lived on. That's the story Prince Felix wrote about and claimed, and I I hope it's true. It's still entertaining. Uh, It's a story that's become legend. And before we wrap up the the whole tale of Rasputin uh, with what happened to Russia after he dies and the royal family that protected him, uh, let's check in, before we get out of here, uh, with some idiots of the internet. If you want to find the most entertaining comments about any given topic, I think you just need to add the word conspiracy to the topic title when you search for videos. Uh, I found this next great little thread under a video called Who Really Killed Rasputin? Posted by a channel called All-Time Conspiracies after Googling Rasputin Conspiracies. Uh, Halfway down the comment section, user Bale Wolfenstein asked two years ago, Who gives a fuck about this shit? This is history. We're ahead of this. Did you guys know that there are islands on our planet that humans haven't stepped foot in? Let's talk about that shit. <laughs> I, love, I love the line, this is history, we're ahead of this. What a unbelievably ignorant line of thought. Just bro, it already happened. Why are we talking about it still? We're, bro, we're ahead of it. Why can't we only talk about things in front of us, bro? Things that might still happen. What, who ever learned anything from something that happened? Who cares if the best world leaders uh, ever consistently studied history to avoid mistakes of the past and repeat them? Fuck that. I want to talk about islands, bro. Talk about some, let's talk about some islands, bro. Uh, user uh, Snarfendorf immediately responds with some, some, some comment gold, saying, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Does your mother know you're using the computer? Oh, Snarfendorf. Well played. Well played. I love it. Does your mother know you're using the computer? snap mic drop beautiful comment uh bale wolfenstein responds with something that makes me think he really is using his mom's computer and she probably doesn't know he just he just writes back shut up you fat skank wow uh when you don't have the wit to form an intelligent response just call people stuff like fat and skank you silly child well user lj vids immediately stands up for snarfendorf uh writing aw did someone's feelings get hurt poor little baby do you want me to go get your mommy poor little thing Yes, throw a little salt in that mommy wound. You know he can't stand it. You know that when Bale Wolfenstein read that, he became immediately enraged. Shut the fuck up! I'll live with my mommy! Okay, okay, maybe I maybe I do, but not not forever. Ha <laughs> I'll have my own place by the time I'm 45, for sure. Well, uh, before Bale Wolfenstein responds, so many other users pile on saying stuff like, why are you watching this video then? LOL, internet troll is bad. Go back to your basement and my little... <laughs> My Little Pony Marathon. And are you stupid? You can't have a conspiracy without history. And this is a conspiracy channel, not a science channel. What do unvisited islands have to do with conspiracies? Well, Beowulf and Stein doesn't listen to any of this. He doubles down on his original position, right? He's not going to fucking hear it. He says, bro, I want to talk about the universe. (laughs) I don't know why it's so funny to me right now. He says, bro, I want to talk about the universe and rocket ships, futuristic stuff. Not shit sure that happened a long time ago. We are ahead of that. <laughs> Bro, I love that. Bro, how many times do I have to say it? We're ahead of it. Oh, I, I let me just keep saying that as if someone's going to finally comment back like, you know what, Beowulf Wolfenstein? You're right. I was thinking about it and we are ahead of that. Why are you even talking about shit we're ahead of? Let's talk about fucking islands and rocket ships and stuff, you know? I get it now. And again, various users gang up, rightfully so, against B.L. Wolfenstein, you know, saying stuff like, you can't make a conspiracy without anything to happen, because to have a conspiracy, uh, you are a stupid fucking idiot. And referring to the YouTube channel name, it's called All Time Conspiracies for a reason. And you are a terrible troll. Why can't you just go watch Blue's Clues and get ready for school tomorrow? I love that one, too. Because you know that, like, after the first two, that made him so mad. I'm not a baby! I never watched Blue's Clues! God damn it! Finally, Beowulfenstein jumps in for one last comment. So he, si- he signs off with, "Keep up with my comments, and you'll for sure lose your faith in humanity." You know that there's no smile on his face as he typed that. You know, just probably typed it mumbling to himself. Just took a history. We're we're ahead of it, bro.
1: I just want to just want to talk about islands and
0: rocketships. Uh, I'm going to go with another conspiracy theorist for the next and final uh, idiot today. This is user uh, Mark Mahanitz, who who one year ago, under a YouTube post of an episode of Discovery Channel series, The Most Evil Men in History, the Rasputin episode, wrote, uh, You are full of rubbish and contradictory lies. You are covering up for the Brits for murdering him. Here's why this is preposterously idiotic. The murder of Rasputin, as you know, occurred over 100 years ago. Just over. Anyone even remotely involved in that murder, uh, you know, even if there was a a secret British assassination, are long dead. Not only that, the entire empire that protected Rasputin is gone. The regime that would take over after the death of Rasputin, the Bolsheviks, the communists, that included Lenin and Stalin, they're gone. Basically, there's no one left to hide the cover-up from. If Britain announces definitively tomorrow, hey, everybody, we killed Rasputin in 1916, for sure, we did it, guilty, No one outside of a few historians will give a shit. This is where conspiracy theorists fuck up so often, right? They're they're hiding the truth from us. Okay, maybe they are, but why? Why are they? Right, always ask yourself why. What does someone have to gain from this particular truth being hidden? And if no one has anything to gain from suppressing the information, it's not a closely guarded conspiracy, right? At least not anymore. It's just fucking nonsense. But some dipshit like Mark Mahanitz actually thinks if we believe his statement— that some documentary filmmakers and some Discovery Channel execs who, who made this are, are, are in a meeting room somewhere just going, guys, guys, something just came up. There's been a lot of chatter online lately about Rasputin being killed by the British government, by a British spy. So we have to make up some new propaganda. I think you see where I'm going with this ASAP. Do you, do you understand what's at stake here? If the Russian people find out that the Brits killed Rasputin, it's World War III. Okay, Putin's gonna nuke London immediately. Trump is gonna, Trump is gonna nuke London and Moscow and North Korea and everyone else because he's gonna panic and he's just gonna push all the red buttons. Mutant zombies are gonna rule the land. We're gonna be dragged from our homes by goddamn nuke zombies and pro- and probably raped. God. Oh god, guys, I can't I can't get raped by a nuke zombie. That's too much. I fucking hate nuke zombies and they're, they're constant raping and and they're brain eating. Think about that. They, they eat brains. They're probably going to eat my dog's brain. They're they're probably going to rape my dog and eat his brain. So you know what? Unless you want your dog raped by a brain-eating nuke zombie, you better put out an episode about how Russian nobles were definitely responsible for killing Rasputin and not the Brits. I'm going to go lie down now. All right. Enough enough nonsense for today. Let's finish off Rasputin's tale. Idiots of the Internet. 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 So, brit murder or prince felix murder rasputin is definitely dead at the end of 1916 and the Romanovs not far behind remember raspy's prediction if i'm killed
1: by my brothers you have nothing to fear if it is your relations who have brought about my death and none of your family will remain alive for more than two years they will all be killed by the russian family well three
0: months after rasputin's death a St. Petersburg bread riot breaks out on March 18, 1917 and it triggers a Russian revolution. People are sick of the war, sick of the czars, sick of food shortages. Nicholas II, he's losing the loyalty of the Russian people. He basically completely lost it. He lost the loyalty of the military, even St. Petersburg politicians by refusing to relinquish any of his autocratic power and allowing the the Russian Duma or parliament, established in 1906 as an advisory and legislative board uh, to reduce the power of the czar and allow for a new style of government, closer to that of Britain's, for example, to help govern the empire. So like everyone is against the Tsar and Tsarina now. And when the people of St. Petersburg are enraged by a perceived bread shortage, the people revolt, and the revolution begins that would put the Bolsheviks in power and usher uh, uh, out the Russian Empire You know, uh, imperialistic days. Now it's going to be the the new era of communism. Well, a few weeks later, uh, after this riot, uh, Nicholas abdicates the throne, hands it over to his brother, doesn't even want his son to take it, hands it over to Grand Duke Michael, who also declines it. Uh, Nicholas appeals to the UK for asylum and is denied. Uh, He and his family head to a governor's mansion in the Urals to ride out what they're still hoping might just be a temporary uprising. You know, they won't be the Tsar anymore if if, if things, you know, when things settle down, possibly, but at least they'll they'll be alive. Uh, By March of 1918, the Romanovs are still hiding and now subsisting on government rations, right? Uh, A final taste of their own medicine, finally feeling what it feels like to live in the economic climate they've helped create. By the end of April, the Romanovs are transferred to their final residence by the Bolsheviks, who are now consolidating power, formerly in Russia. Uh, they're, taken, they're taken to a little two-story house in the town of uh, Yekaterinburg uh, on the night of July 16th. The entire family is shot and bayoneted to death by an execution squad, squad. Uh, fulfilling Rasputin's prediction that the Romanovs would not last two years and the entire family would die if he was killed by Russian nobles. So there it is, the wild tale of Rasputin, the mad monk. What a crazy tale it is, right? A lot of lessons in it. I'm not, I'm not totally sure what all of them are. Uh, maybe never let a dude who perpetually perpetually has food in his beard and smells like an old goat, maybe never let him fuck your friends and come in and out of your house at will if you're even remotely concerned about public reputation, right? Uh, That might be a lesson. Maybe uh, don't let the guy help run the country. If you happen to be a world leader, it's probably another. Uh, Maybe if you are that guy, the lesson is always pack a weapon. If you're going to go to a buddy's house to sleep with his wife and don't eat or or drink anything, uh, he isn't also eating or drinking. Uh, maybe don't whip your dick out in restaurants uh, is a lesson. Maybe don't do that ever. Maybe that's not a good way to get people to be on your side. I mean, I think it's funny. I think it's very funny, but probably not. I'm probably the minority on that one, you know? Uh, what I really wonder the most with this story is, did he really have some sort of mythical healing powers? Or was he a complete charlatan? Like, you know, was he 100% con man? Maybe only 50% con man? Maybe 0%? I don't know. Maybe he really believed his uh, dick was uh, worth worshiping. Maybe he was just, you know, out for sex. Maybe he really believed you could send your way into grace. Maybe maybe he could heal, or at least believed he could he could heal. I don't know. Maybe somehow that dude did tap into something. I just don't understand. I will say again, I know I said twice already, when you look at his eyes, it does make you think of some paranormal possibilities. God, he has weird eyes. And, and they're like powerfully odd in a photo. Uh, again, I just can't imagine how powerful they would be in real life. I don't know. You know, maybe he derived his power from the great Nimrod, god of time suck and possessor of Rasputin. Maybe Nimrod is super horny for Russian women. That's his one earthly weakness, Russian women and alcohol and painkillers and, and sweets and candies and cakes. Okay, so he has a few earthly weaknesses, but Russian women, especially Russian peasant women and their giant babuskas, that's the main one. So hail Nimrod. I know not his ways, but Rasputin may have known them all too well. He gave Rasputin his healing and sexual powers. He gave Michael motherfucking McDonald his golden angel voice, and he gave Bojangles immortality, and invincibility. It all makes sense in an incredibly convoluted and nonsensical way. All right, enough, Nimrod. Enough. Let's take five more quick looks at Rasputin with our top five takeaways.
1: Time suck. Top five takeaways.
0: Number one, two factors open the door of the Tsar to the peasant Rasputin. A current obsession amongst Russian nobility with spirituality and the occult and the sole heir to the Russian Empire being an incurable hemophiliac. Uh, how has, you know, uh, uh, James Wan not directed some awesome horror movie about a sick heir to the Russian throne and his possibly demonic protector? Come on, get busy, Hollywood. Less remakes, more Rasputin. Number two, Rasputin convinced numerous women that, you know, having sex with him and having group sex with him was a way of getting closer to God, putting him in the manipulative pimp hall of fame alongside Jim, I'm sodomizing you for your sake, Jones. Number three, Rasputin was once stabbed and almost killed by a noseless former prostitute, which sounds crazy, but does make way more sense than being stabbed by a uh, noseless woman who's currently a prostitute. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm not, but I'm just thinking, realistically, it's going to be pretty hard to get work as a prostitute uh, if you don't have a nose. Maybe not as important as uh, vagina, but uh, I would say like top ten, you know, things you should have as a prostitute. Uh, Number four, not only... Did Rasputin uh, have sex with a crazy amount of women, but he also uh, directly led to the downfall of its imperialistic rulers, which opened the door for communism, which led to millions and millions of Russian deaths and hundreds of millions of oppressed lives. So really, in the end, Rasputin kind of fucked all of Russia. Number five, new info, Rasputin's dick. Let's talk about it. You know you've been wondering about it if you've heard about this guy. Why does the Museum of Erotica in St. Petersburg claim to have it? How did they get it? First off, uh, the dick has uh, the dick in the museum is over 11 inches long. Limp. Limp. Supposedly over 13 inches long when erect. I don't know how they know that. Uh, no wonder some of these women thought it was a conduit to God when they it. They'd never seen anything like it. 13 inches is over twice as long as the average penis. You know? And, and roughly half the size of Bojangles' uh, penises, or so he keeps telling me. Uh, no wonder the dude was so confident. He had a third leg wrapped up underneath his monk shroud. And, and why does it supposedly still exist? Well, historians doubt that it actually does. Uh, but if it does, here are the legends. Uh, one is that before being uh, tossed into his r- in the river, in addition to being beaten, supposedly Rasputin was mutilated at the home of Prince Felix, like his dick was torn off, and a maid found it the next day, uh, which is weird. Uh, y- you would think uh, one of the three conspirators would have remembered to toss, to throw away his dick, to, <laughs> to put it in the trash. But to be fair, they had a long night, took a long time trying to kill him. They were tired and they forgot his dick. And the maid supposedly kept it because, you know, hey, it's not every day you find a huge uh, severed penis uh, on the floor, I guess. Another rumor is that a former lover took his dick uh, from the morgue after they recovered his body from the morgue. And I, and I guess whoever, whoever got it thought, I better, I better put this in a jar and preserve it. Uh, another rumor is that by the 1920s, a group of well-to-do Russian women living in Paris uh, had the dick. <laughs> they got a hold of it and essentially uh, met regularly to worship it. That's a hell of a dick. One that gets worshipped by groups of women <laughs> years after your debt. Uh, a different alleged uh, Rasputin dick turned out to be a dried-out sea cu- cucumber in a separate collection in the 90s. Uh, is this one the real member? I don't know. Head to St. Petersburg, if you're curious. You know? Uh, uh, finally, the uh, perpetual sixth grader living inside of me thinks it's hilarious that his alleged dick is uh, is kept in a town called St. Petersburg. So, Cube Beavis and Butthead laugh now.
1: Time suck. Top five takeaway.
0: All right, suckers. Time, suckers, suckheads. We did it. Another suck in the suck can. Thanks to all you suckers who were uh, who headed out to Tampa this past week, uh, rocking some suck shirts, making it a great couple days. I appreciate it very much. I always love seeing those in the audience. makes me uh, feel so good. Uh, hope to see some East Coast suckers, maybe some upstate suckers next week in Syracuse. Uh, I'm also uh, going to be at the Syracuse, uh, yeah, Funny Bone, uh, or I'm going to be, and also. That would be weird to say oh, I'm going to be in Syracuse and also at the Funny, of course, that's why. That's why I'm in Syracuse, Syracuse is to be at the Syracuse Funny Bone. August 17th through 20. I'm going to be at the Irvine Improv, uh, August 24 and 27th, Southern California, uh, at the Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Funny Bone, August 31st through September 3rd. And I got dates in Portland, uh, Spokane, Washington, Madison, Denver, Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, and more coming up before the end of the year. And tickets still on sale for the first ever live recording at Time Suck. You know it. I'm going to be at the Hollywood Improv in the lab, Thursday, October 5th. Show starts at 7.30 p.m. Uh, doors open at 7. Tickets are only 15 bucks. Please come support this event uh, if you can. The ticket link is going to be in the episode description on the podcast player and at timesuckpodcast.com. And please follow The Suck on social media for reminders about events like this, previews of upcoming episodes, more polls in the future, uh, at timesuckpodcast on Instagram, Twitter, slash timesuckpodcast on Facebook. And next week, next week we go modern. We've been looking back for a while. Next week, let's go paranormal. Let's go slender, man. Slenderman, how did this modern internet monster convince two 12-year-old girls to stab another 12-year-old girl almost to death in Wisconsin in 2014? Why, why did the legend of this creature go so viral? What even is this legend? Who created this eerie, slender specter that encourages kids to kill each other? Will, will the two 12-year-old attackers, now 15, uh, each be found guilty of attempted murder at their trial that's scheduled for this fall? Let's figure out what the hell the deal is with the, with the digital folklore that spawned a viral web series— online games, independent films, and so much more. Why Slenderman? Well, we're going to find out. It's been requested numerous times. I've heard about it countless times. Uh, And again, the trial is coming up soon, and I'm just tired of not knowing what the hell Slenderman is all about. So until next week, uh, stay curious. Keep your wiener in your pants. Stay away from wild-eyed mystics. Never worship a wiener in a jar, especially in groups. That's the weirdest. And, you know, just, uh... keep on sucking. (laughs)